And now may we turn to the 11th chapter of the book of Romans as we continue the series that we have been working on for quite some time in this great epistle. And we will read together verses 7 through 15. I will remind you of what has gone before as we begin this evening's sermon. Now, I need to tell you, this is longer than most evening sermons. So, um, we're tired on Sunday evening, but be alert. Uh, It's really necessary to expound the text. Will you bow with me in prayer? Our Father, we now come to thy word. Thy word is truth. And what a word we have tonight. If indeed, Heavenly Father, we are simply focused upon ourselves, we may not see it to be so great, because we are self-centered. But take us out of ourselves and into Christ, and may we so focus upon Him that we will look upon the glory due to His name that is indeed prophesied in this passage as something so marvelous and so wonderful that were it not found in your word, it would be unbelievable. Hear our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together to read God's word, Romans chapter 11, beginning with verse 7 through verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask... Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, as we move through Romans tonight, we are coming to one of the most remarkable prophetic passages of the Bible, one of the most remarkable, unfulfilled prophetic passages of the Bible. And when we get to verse 26 later, I think more will be made plain. But for now, the interpretation of this section that we begin tonight, let me emphasize, has been the catalyst for the missionary movement in the church from the Puritan era even into the early 20th centuries, 20th century. I cannot stress how greatly this passage has impacted the preaching of the gospel around the world 
and has impacted the missionary calling of the church. How wonderful then before our missions conference, which begins this coming week, to come to the beginning of this passage tonight. Now, what we've seen is this as we have moved into chapter 11. The Lord reveals his plan for Israel by stressing through Paul the Apostle the glorious biblical theme of electing grace. Time and again we've seen this in Romans 8, uh, 28 through 30. Um, All together, chapter 9 of the book of Romans. You remember the words of John Owen? No election, no gospel, no gospel, no church. And so the very fact that there is a church is anchored in the electing grace of God. But Paul in chapter 11 returns to the theme of election because he is concerned for the salvation of his own countrymen. And he knows that there is no hope for his own countrymen apart from the gospel and apart from election, which saves sinners. He has argued this way. God has not cast away his people, that God plans to bring a remnant of Israel into the church, that there is a remnant according to election, that election, remember, election is of grace, that grace and not works is the only hope for his apostate fellow countrymen. This he has said in these earlier verses that we did not tonight read. And in this context, there is the encouragement of God's prior work in history, He pointed to 1 Kings chapter 19, the first 18 verses, when God destroyed the false prophets on Mount Carmel. Jezebel threatened Elijah so that Elijah fled to Mount Horeb. And how did things look for Elijah? Everything looked dark. Everything looked dark. They've killed your prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. All seemed dark. But things are never as dark as they seem. Indeed, in terms of God's overall plan for his church, things are never dark. Is not the Lord still in sovereign control? Chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so God has an elect remnant. Indeed, today it is still true that God has his own chosen people, and it will be that way because that electing grace is anchored in God's eternal plan. He saves by grace and not by works. Verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so we now come to verse 7, and the first thing that I want you to see in the passage that we are now expounding is this, salvation is only attained by sovereign electing grace. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now what were they seeking that is spoken of in this seventh verse? Well, Back in chapter 10, verse 3, we read, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And in chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, 
but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. What did Israel seek? That is obtained by election that they themselves could not attain righteousness. They were seeking righteousness, a right standing before God by their own works and paltry means. But election obtains this standing before God. Works of men could never do it. Election is worked out in history so that Christ would come. He would obey the law that the Jew and Gentile broke. He would shed his precious blood on the cross, rise from the dead, that chosen sinners might be declared righteous in God's eyes. Now, could any language anywhere more clearly point to the fact that our acceptance with God is thoroughly, completely, and utterly by grace, whether it speaks of the Jew or the Gentile. If our justification is anchored in our election, then there is no place for works righteousness whatsoever. It is purely grace, purely according to God's good pleasure. And note that in verse 7, this is actually more apparent in the authorized version. He speaks of the remnant as the election because all of their hopes are here. Now, even though this is addressed to the Jew, this, of course, is something applicable to all of God's people who are saved by the grace of God. And I simply mention in passing, do you revel in the electing grace of God? Do you bow heart before the Lord and say, I praise you, Father, for you have done this great thing for me that I could never have done for myself? Oh, Father, I thank you. I thank you for grace, grace, grace. For there could not be one thimbleful of my own works mingled with the gospel if I am to be saved. So we move on then in the passage, and the second thing we see is just as there is a remnant of grace, there are also others who are judicially blinded. And this is seen by two quotations of imprecation that the apostle cites here in this passage in verses 7 through 9. He quotes from Isaiah, and he quotes David's imprecation. Now, the first passage he quotes is found there in verse 8. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And that's from Isaiah 29. This not only describe the Jews in Isaiah's time, but it was a prophecy, a prediction of the position of the Jews in Paul's own day. The Jews are to blame for their sin, but the Lord took the natural inclinations of their rebellious hearts and worked a deep judicial blindness and hardness. Remember the blessings that were theirs? Back in chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, look at the the blessings that belong to the Jew. Chapter 9, verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. All of these blessings were given to the national Jew. And yet, what did they do with those blessings? They rejected the Messiah rejected all that the covenants pointed to, rejected all of these blessings that come from the grace of God. 
As old Matthew Henry says, the same sun softens wax and hardens clay. And there's a principle here to apply. For it is still true that a person can have great blessing within the confines and context of the visible church, and yet one is hearing the gospel because of God's grace believingly, and another is hearing the gospel and is only becoming harder and harder and harder. Isaiah says, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear. And again, old Matthew Henry, they had the faculties, but in that belonged to their peace, they had not the use of those faculties. They were quite infatuated. They saw Christ, but they did not believe in him. They heard his word, but they did not receive it. And so both their hearing and their seeing were in vain. Paul quotes Isaiah. Then in verse 9, the apostle Paul quotes the imprecation from Psalm 69, Now, those things intended for their good are now the very things, he says, that work against them. Look at it, verse 9. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. David's words are prophetic of Jewish blindness in the time frame in which Paul is writing. Now, Psalm 69, you might remember is a very awesome passage. It is prophetic of the Jews' horrible treatment of Christ. It speaks of the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, and it also speaks of the success of the gospel of Jesus. The curses of this psalm, as predicted, fell upon the Christ-rejecting Jews, and it fills the heart with awe. It really does shut the mouth to consider the awesome judgment of God. And again, there's a principle here. Robert Haldane says about that on the rest and the rest were blinded. How strong is this language? How can it be softened by the most suitable ingenuity so as to make it agreeable to the taste of the natural man? The election had received the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ, but the whole nation besides not only did not attain to the righteousness of which they were in search, but were blinded. This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? It is God's saying, and it is unsafe to reject it. It is the duty of his people as little children to receive it with meekness. And so just as we hear of the Gentile when we read together the first chapter of the book of Romans, so we hear in chapter 11 of the Jew this reality that sin is the punishment of sin. Sin is the punishment of sin. All of this looks pretty dark, doesn't it? (laughs) The Apostle Paul saying, yes, there's a remnant, but I'm concerned about my kinsmen according to the flesh, but they're all hard-hearted, except for that little remnant of which I am one by grace. They're hard-hearted, their eyes are blinded, they're they're in judicial darkness. But Paul's not done, is he? And we see thirdly the purpose of Israel's stumbling in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? 
by no means. Meganoita, the old authorized version, God forbid, rather through their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So God has not cast away his people because he has secured a remnant by means of election. Have they stumbled that they should not fall? God forbid. Has the nation forever stumbled? Absolutely not. Has the nation stumbled that they should never rise? No. What then were God's purposes in this? Well, he tells us, one, that salvation would come to the Gentiles. The Jew rejected, the gospel is spread to the Gentiles. And two, that Israel would trust again in her Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of provoking to jealousy in verse 11. That seeing God's saving blessing on the Gentiles will be used of God to provoke them to want to be a part of the church as constituted in the new covenant era. The Holy Spirit will so use it. Blessed be God. He will finally overrule the Jews' rebellion, he is telling us in this passage. And verse 12 tells us, that if the fall of the Jews be the riches of the Gentiles, much more will be their restoration. Their fall brought about the Savior's death for sinners, the extension of the gospel to the world. But Paul says their fullness, in verse 12, their fullness will bring about even more blessing. Let me go to old Haldane again. It will be connected with a calling of the nations to an extent beyond anything yet witnessed and also with a great enlargement of their knowledge of the gospel. So we're given a magnificent thought here, that national Israel that has rejected Christ, that God will bring their fullness and their salvation. And Paul the apostle to the Gentiles says in verse 13 that he magnifies his office in this prediction, and in verse 14 Paul wishes to stir others up to seek the conversion of some of the Jews, some because Paul knows that the vast body of Jews is rejected while he writes. But there will come, however, another day. And that is going to change in the future. At some point, says Paul, the apostle who speaks as prophet here, which leads us to the fourth thing, Life from the dead. Verse 15. For if their rejection, this is the Jews' rejection, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, that is to say the gospel has gone worldwide because the Jews rejected the Savior, what will their acceptance mean? That is to say their restoration in relationship to God. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead. (laughs) Yes? Paul looks to the future and sees, listen, I've tried to work this text every way I can. Most of of the, the, the present day Reformed expositors say we're only dealing with the cumulative effect of the various remnants that will be saved over time, thus all Israel will be saved, verse 26. That just won't work. 
So I'm right in line with the Puritan interpreters of this passage who see very, very clearly that Paul is talking here about a day that is coming in which there will be a national conversion of Jews, a racial conversion of Jews, a massive conversion of Jews, however one wants to see it or say it. So Paul looks to the future and he sees, what what other word can we use? He sees a great revival that will be after the order of his language, a resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul says the belief of the Jews will be a greater blessing to the Gentiles than was the result of their disbelief. Verse 12, how much more their fullness. And here there's a contrast with Israel's condition when Paul is writing and what at some point in the future will be their condition. John Murray who was, as some of you know, professor of systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in its halcyon days. Uh, John Murray says this in his commentary. We should expect, listen, listen. Do you want to be missions-minded? Listen to this. We should expect that the enlarged blessing would be the expansion of the success attending the gospel and the kingdom of God. There awaits the Gentiles in their distinctive identity as such, Gospel blessing far surpassing anything experienced during the period of Israel's apostasy. And this unprecedented enrichment will be occasioned by the conversion of Israel on a scale commensurate with that of their disobedience. On a scale commensurate with their disobedience? Whoa! (laughs) I'm amazed. Now again, as I prayed earlier, if we're just focused upon ourselves, maybe we read this and we don't see anything great about it. But if we are focused on the glory of God and the name of Jesus Christ and our purpose to see his name exalted in the world, then this means everything, doesn't it? And now verse 15 is plain. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Something in the future is going to happen, and Paul can only say it's going to be like life from the dead. So reconciliation contrasts with casting away. Restoration of Israel in her fullness contrasts with casting off. Just look at verses 12 and 15. Notice the contrast. Verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And in verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And so do you see the contrast? Restoration of Israel in her fullness contrasts with her casting off and her casting off contrasts with her restoration. Those rejected will be readmitted. The Jews will be readmitted into the church, and the blessing to the world evangelization will be incalculable. Verse 12, if their rejection led to the spread of the gospel, how much more their fullness? 
And then when we come to verses 25 and 26, in a few weeks possibly, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. The marginal note in the Geneva Bible, you know the Geneva Bible, that is um, one of the translations that was used by um, ministers and the people of God prior to the translation of the King James Version, and there were marginal notes, and the marginal note on verse 15 reads, the Jews now remain as it were in death for lack of the gospel. But when both they and the Gentiles shall embrace Christ, the world shall be restored to a new life. And so it's so wonderful that it can only be called a resurrection from the dead, a blessing the proportions of which have not yet been seen. Some of you say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Uh, Jesus' coming is something that could happen at any moment, right? The coming of Jesus Christ is not imminent. It is impending. And there are certain things to be fulfilled before Jesus comes again. The preaching of the gospel to all nations. Only he knows precisely what that means, the extent to which that that is yet to be fulfilled. We don't even have Bible translations in the hands of all people yet. Is that included? I don't know. There is, there is the, uh, the man of sin that is yet to be manifest. But there also is a massive conversion of the Jews in the future. Now, the Lord can do that a nation born in a day. He can do that overnight if he wishes. And so, yes, he can take care of all of these things next week if he so wishes, and Jesus will come again. But it also might be true that we're still the primitive church, as B.B. Warfield said, that it may be a long time yet coming. The point is, every generation lives as if we will be the generation when Jesus comes again and in which all of these things will be fulfilled. Gerhardus Voss, I think, is absolutely right. When looking at this chapter, he says that the solution to the problem of Jewish unbelief is solved in a twofold manner by Paul, the apostle, by divine inspiration. First, there is even now a remnant among Israel according to the election of grace, and that remnant is being called and drawn into the church. And then he adds, and I quote him, that in the future there will be a comprehensive conversion of Israel. So before the return of Christ, we are led to anticipate a revival such as the world has never known. Life from the dead is the language that is used by Paul in this passage. Look at verse 15 again. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, and by the way, I'm no dispensationalist. This has nothing to do with dispensationalism. You will have noted that everybody I'm quoting are Reformed authors with whom I am in agreement. 
It has nothing to do with dispensationalism whatsoever. Lloyd-Jones, no dispensationalist, says the church obviously will be lifted up. He means in that day when that happens, the church obviously will be lifted up into a state of ecstasy, amazement, and of glory. Anticipated, I might add, by the revivals in history, anticipated by conversions now, but the church will say, in that day, the church will say, we have never seen anything like this. And this is a wonderful note on which to conclude asking you to ponder this as we move toward a missions conference. Wouldn't you agree? The kingdom of God through history has been wonderfully advanced through genuine revivals. Yes, in the latter days, perilous times shall come. But yes, God also is at work in history to draw his people And he uses sometimes the acceleration of marvelous revivals. So which is true? Is it true that things are just getting better and better and better and the kingdom of God is advancing and advancing? Or is it true that things are getting worse and worse and worse and the kingdom of Satan is advancing? My answer is yes. Satan's kingdom is certainly advancing. Christ's kingdom is certainly advancing, and he will have his purpose. But no matter how glorious and wonderful these things may be, it will never set aside the necessity for the cataclysmic intervention of the Son of God at the end of the age. I think I'm paraphrasing Voss there, but it's absolutely true. So this is a wonderful note on which to conclude the kingdom of God through history, wonderfully advanced through genuine revivals. But I think we see here, people of God, the revival to top them all. You say, how can that happen that the Jews in in mass will come to know the Lord? Do you remember a few weeks ago I reminded you of the revival on the Isle of Lewis? 1940s until about 1950. Uh, Two old ladies, sisters, I think, had been praying for revival. Uh, The the young people were disinterested in church. People weren't coming anymore. Uh, There were certainly saints. There was certainly a remnant. But on the Isle of Lewis, off the western coast of Scotland, uh, there was very little vital, vital Christianity. These ladies prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And there was a minister that came over uh, to take part in uh, meetings there. The wonderful thing that happened was that immediately upon his coming, a revival had broken out on the Isle of Lewis. Uh, Young people, there were over a hundred of them at a dance in the middle of the night, I'm telling you, in the middle of the night, they were just convicted of sin. And they they came to the church because that's where they thought they would find help. People all over the parish, just in the middle of the night, knew that something was wrong with their souls. And they all got up and they went to the church. The minister couldn't get to the pulpit because the church was thronged. And over the next few years, it spread over that whole very large island. 
Well, that's an example of what God can do. God can do this, can he not? God can awaken the Jew. Uh, he, can, he can awaken in uh, uh, mass the Jew. Uh, he, can, he can apply the gospel of Jesus Christ that is being preached among them now. Uh, he can awaken their souls to see that they're lost and undone. And this great gospel that is spread through the Gentile world, ah, jealousy awakens in the good sense. I want it too. God can do that because he is God. And I was speaking with a friend of mine, actually a Scottish Presbyterian friend of mine, on the phone this past week, and we were talking about the glory of this passage, the wonder of this passage. And he said, remember, David, Jesus is from what nation? Well, he's a Jew. Remember, he sits upon the throne as the God-man, but as a Jew. Doesn't that say something about what he may intend to do for his people? which I thought was a very profound observation. And so can we believe what James Renwick martyred in 1688 when he said, there have been great and glorious days of the gospel in this land, England, but they have been small in comparison of what shall be. And should this not subservient to the blessed hope of Christ's return, fuel our preaching of the gospel our prayers for the conversion of the Jews, and also for the greater extent of blessing of the gospel in this world than has ever before been known. Let us not doubt the power of the Holy Spirit of God and pray for remarkable effusions and communications of his Holy Spirit in saving power, yes, still now, but also in the future. For as we read in Psalm 89, all nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord. And God's people said, Amen.